The book of Daniel, chapter 3. As we continue our series in Daniel, it seems that each week there becomes a bit more familiar of a passage. Isn't that true? Kids, how many of you know the story of the three Hebrews and the fiery furnace? Do any of you know that story? Anyone? There's a couple back there. Yeah. Do any adults know this story of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego? So this is a very familiar story. What I would like you to do this morning is to use that familiarity to enter into the text. But also, I want us to see the greater meaning behind this story. It's an important and epic story for a reason. And so I'd like us to take a look at that this morning. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces to come up to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, <coughs> nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to, Nebuch to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree <coughs> that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. 
Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, so fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the, fiery, the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast these three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask that you would bless these words, that you would bless your word by your spirit to our lives, that we would be affected, that we would be drawn to you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, that certainly is a long text. That's a three sip of water text. But I wanted to read the whole text for you, and hopefully you've got a feel for how the story goes. 
you have a feel for a bit of the repetition that occurs in there. Maybe it was the third or the fourth time I mentioned the instruments that you thought, wow, what's going on here? I did that intentionally because I want us to think about that as we go through this story. This is the great story of the three Hebrew youths, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, given their Babylonian names. Their Hebrew names, of course, are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But this story is not just plopped into the midst of the book of Daniel because it shows how brave we can be when standing up for God. How good we can be. No, this story is placed here in this very place because in a sense it is a continuation of what we looked at last week in the end of chapter 2. You remember how we saw the kingdom of man set up against the kingdom of God. That's what we have here in chapter 3 as well. It's just a little bit more subtle. The first thing that we will see this morning is how Nebuchadnezzar specifically is challenging God. The first thing is a challenge to God. And it occurs in two things. It occurs in the building of the image and the building of the kingdom. It is a direct challenge to God. The second thing we will see is that there is a challenge to God's people. And that comes mainly from these Chaldeans. There is a challenge to God and then there is a challenge to God's people. And that comes in the form of three A's. An attack, anger, and assault. An attack upon the people of God. And then finally we will see how the challenge is met. How the challenge is met in deliverance. And how the challenge is met the reaction of those who observe it. Well, let's look first then at the challenge of God, the challenging of God. Nebuchadnezzar builds this image, this large statue. And it's actually very difficult to describe or to think about because it is 60 cubits high by 6 cubits wide. Now, in English, that means it's 90 feet tall and nine feet across. It's actually in about the same dimensions as the Washington Monument. If you want a picture in your mind. It's not as tall as the Washington Monument. It's about a quarter of the size. But when you consider this is ancient Babylon, and not modern America building it, it's a pretty tall statue. But it's an odd-looking statue, first because it is made of gold, or at least it's overlain all in gold. So it would shine resplendent in the sun. It would be seen for miles because of its height and because of the large amount of gold covering it. But it would look odd because if we think about it, a human being's proportions are something like 5 to 1 or 6 to 1, height to width. This is 10 to 1. So it's this kind of skinny, gigantically tall, golden mass in the midst of a desert. Now, if that strikes you as odd, it should. It's bad enough that Nebuchadnezzar is building this gigantic statue that is all stretched out of proportion. You know, like those old toys you got, Mr. Stretchy, where you took his leg and his head and you stretched him out. It's bad enough that is the case. Nebuchadnezzar then commands all of the bureaucrats, all of the leaders of Babylon from all over the kingdom 
to meet him out in the middle of the desert and to bow down before this new God that he has created for them. This is Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to unify his empire, to build his kingdom. You remember he saw a dream. He saw an image. And that image was of a different kind of statue, a statue that had a head of gold, but it had feet of clay. So Nebuchadnezzar understands from the interpretation from Daniel that his kingdom is to fall and to be followed by three other kingdoms. And like every good king who hears some bad news, he ignores it. He says, well, that can't possibly be true. No, not my kingdom. Not to me. I know what I'll do. I'll build a different statue. A statue that doesn't just have a head of gold, but it's all of gold. No feet of clay here. And I'll bring everyone in and I'll unify my empire. Because you remember that that was one of the problems with the kingdom of man in chapter 2. That it got progressively worse in terms of unity. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I will build up this image. Now, lest we fail to see the connection... The word here in chapter 3, verse 1, the image that Nebuchadnezzar built, is the exact same word that is used in chapter 2. It's an image. He is recreating the image in his own sight. And this is now also the third challenge that will be faced by those who seek to serve the living God. First it was food, then it was Dream interpretations, and now it is an image. What we need to see here is the persistence of the kingdom of darkness. The persistence of the kingdom that sets itself up against man. You see, too often when we think of the great struggle between the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who would seek to oppose him, we think of it in terms of a horror movie. Something scary will jump out in the middle of the night. Something will frighten us out of our faith. Something huge and random will come into our lives. When in reality, the kingdom of darkness is rather quite boring. It's just persistent in its attacks. It's the constant whispering in your ear that maybe your wife isn't seeking your needs as well as she should. It's the constant drumbeat Maybe your husband isn't providing for you the things that he ought to. It's the constant talking that says your mom and your dad, they really are clueless. You don't need to listen to them ever. This is how the kingdom of darkness advances. It keeps coming after us with persistence because that is when Satan knows we are most likely to give up. We can stand up often to a grand show, but it is when we are tired and when we are hungry and when attack after attack comes that we desire often to give up. This image is set up and it is a great image that Nebuchadnezzar constructs. Think of the expense of gold, even if it's a thin layer. Gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet in width. The expense would be unbelievable. And there obviously are great theatrics that are involved with this. Because they're brought out into the middle of the desert and they bring Carnegie Hall with them. What do they bring? They bring the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, 
the bagpipe, and every kind of music out to attend to this dedication. Think of our ensemble times two, times three, times ten. They're all out for the dedication of this image. This image was the great work of Nebuchadnezzar. It was set to establish his kingdom. It was an opportunity for him to show his power and his wealth. And it is an idolatry that is stripped of religion. You see, when we think of idolatry, we think of false gods like perhaps Buddha or a totem pole. Or some god of the ancestors. But do you notice one thing about this image that they are to bow down to? It's given no name. It's not an image of any Babylonian god. It is secular idolatry. It is idolatry that does not have a religion around it. The only thing it is really about is Nebuchadnezzar and his government, his state. It is the power of the state taking over spirituality, and religion. Does that sound familiar to you? If it does, you realize we're not so far removed from the trigon, the harp, and the plains of Babylon. You see, this is all about Nebuchadnezzar. In the first few verses, he is mentioned seven times. And I would invite you to have your eye scan down through the chapter and to see how many times it is said that Nebuchadnezzar set up this image. It's in verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 7, in verse 12, in verse 14, and in verse 18. Do you get the picture that is being set here? That this is an image that was set up by Nebuchadnezzar to himself, for himself, and for his own glory. This is the building of the image. But the other way in which Nebuchadnezzar challenges God is by building up his kingdom. You see, he is deliberately trying to contradict the truth of chapter 2. God has told him what will come of his kingdom. But Nebuchadnezzar knows that that can't be right. Because it isn't what he wants. He wants his kingdom never to be destroyed. And so he goes about trying to get around the word of God. Look with me if you would. At Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21. It's specifically said of God that he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he what? Sets up kings. God sets up kings. So Nebuchadnezzar stands up. He comes to the front of the line and he says, well, if God can set up kings, I'll set up gods. That's what I'll do. I'll outdo God. I'll set up my own God. I'll set up my God for my kingdom that will never be destroyed. And you see, this is really what the kingdom of man is all about. It's what it was about at Babel. It's what it was about in the book of Revelation. It's what it is about today in your workplace, at university, across the globe. The kingdom of man seeking to set itself up against God, to build up a kingdom. But you see, our author has an inspired view of all of this. And he does something that I I think is very interesting and would be helpful to us as we see kingdoms built up around us that purport to be strong, but are really just stretchy men 
with a little bit of gold plating. You see, the author of Daniel does not attack the image. He does not file a writ of habeas corpus. He does not write a serious invective. Do you know what he does to this image and to Nebuchadnezzar and this kingdom? He laughs at it. He mocks it. He sees it for the foolishness that it is. Now, I want you to think about this. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image and he calls out over and over again everyone in the kingdom to come down and as soon as they hear the music, they are to bow down. And so what happens? Music, bow down. Music, bow down. Music, bow down. It's kind of like, ring the bell, salivate. Ring the bell, salivate. It's kind of like Pavlov's dog. You see, it's ridiculous. These people become machines. Hear the music, bow down. The idol can't speak. The idol can't tell them what to do. The idol is lifeless. And they become like it. You see, they become like this idol. And they bring out all of these instruments. And it is not a coincidence that all of these instruments are repeated over and over again. And it doesn't take a musical genius. I don't need to bring in our musical people to tell you that an orchestra made up of a horn, a harp, a bagpipe or a drum, a trigon or a lyre is going to sound a bit odd. It's not exactly woods, strings and brass. It's a cacophony. It's almost like I remember when I was a child watching cartoons. They would have these marching bands in the cartoons and they would all travel as one big mass of arms and legs and drums and trombones. And whenever they needed music, they'd trot this out and they'd play the music. And then they would leave. That's the kind of image you're to get of this orchestra. This is not Carnegie Hall. This is not tails and tuxes. This is foolishness. That is the best that the kingdom of God can come up with. They're automatons. And the irony is, isn't that what the world accuses Christians of being? Not thinking for yourself. Not knowing what to do. Not having freedom of mind. You're so enslaved to this Bible. You're so enslaved to your church. If you really believed in free inquiry, you would act like Pavlov's dog. Like, like a cartoon band. If you really were smart, that's what you would act like. You see, when we see idolatry in this light, when we see how the kingdom of man is set up, it becomes foolishness to us. It does not put fear into our hearts. It does not have chains upon us. It's ridiculous. It's foolish. You see, we forget that. We're able to look back in the past and say, well, you know, if someone carved an image out of a piece of wood with a big nose, that's funny. But when someone starts talking seriously about evolution, well, we have to take them very seriously. When someone starts talking seriously about how the fact of how something can come from nothing, we need to take them seriously because it's serious inquiry. No, it's not. It's foolishness. It's idolatry. This is the challenge to God. 
But it doesn't end there because you see, God has a people and they are known by his name. And those who hate God, those who rebel against God, hate his people. And so we see here in verse 8, at this time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. This is an attack upon the three youths. And the attack is very vicious. The Aramaic idiom is that they ate the pieces of the Jews. We get a little bit of an image with this, with our phrase, backbiting. That's what they are doing. They are seeking to attack these three who will not bow down with every other robot. Now, think about the context of this. These Chaldeans are likely wise men. They are likely wise men who were protected from being torn limb from limb by the prayer meeting of these three men. They have been protected by Daniel and the three Hebrews. And now they have turned on them quicker than you can say lickety split. They come after the Hebrews because they will not be robots like everyone else. They are showing up, the Chaldeans. They are showing up Babylon. They are showing up the empire. And that is one thing that the empire cannot stand for. You see, they know the truth. And so they see the foolishness of the counterfeit. That's how we are protected in a society today. You know, oftentimes we have all of the filth that we need to study in order to know about our society. When in reality... Perhaps you've heard the story. You know how they train Secret Service agents to spot counterfeit bills? They put them in a room for hours and hours and days and days and weeks and weeks with real money. They have them study genuine dollar bills, genuine twenties, genuine hundreds, so that when they see a counterfeit, they know the genuine so well that they immediately spot the mockery of a counterfeit. That's what we are called to do as Christians. We're called to understand the truth of the Scripture, and then whether it's a golden image, a silver image, a pipe band, or a bagpipe, we see that it is counterfeit. These Chaldeans attack the Hebrew youths, and they know exactly where to attack them. They say, you know, king, there are these guys... And first of all, they're ungrateful. You know, these are the certain Jews that you appointed and put in charge. Ungrateful wretches. And you know, these are the ones, they pay no attention to you, king. You know, as important as you are, O king, live forever. Not only are they ungrateful, they're miserable. They don't give you all the honor you deserve. And they don't serve the gods or worship the golden image that you set up. They don't pay you any mind and they don't listen to you. These guys know exactly how to tweak Nebuchadnezzar. And he does not fail to respond. Because you see, after the attack is enjoined, he responds immediately in classic Nebuchadnezzar fashion with rage and fury. Look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that they be brought to him. Now, we've been studying Daniel for a few weeks. How many times have we seen Nebuchadnezzar in a rage? It's like every 15 minutes. Right? You almost wonder how he can run a government. But there's something interesting here that happens. He's in a furious rage. 
And then in verse 19, after the youth say, no, we won't bow down, he's filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed. This would be a little clearer if it said, and the image of his face was changed. It's the same word as the image. You see, the image has changed Nebuchadnezzar's image. He has become like the idol. His face has changed because he is becoming like the idol. This is something that the psalmist promises us. In Psalm 135, verses 14 through 18, it says, Not only are idols lifeless, not only do they not speak, not only do they not hear, are they deaf and dumb, but those who worship them become like them. This is the real danger of idolatry. Idolatry is a straight line to stupidity. That's what Daniel's saying. Even the king, his face is changed, his anger is risen, and it's a natural reaction from him. Nebuchadnezzar has become like his idol. He is deliberately challenging all of the gods, saying, My God is better than any other god. Look at verse 15. He says, is it true that you won't serve? Is it true that you won't worship? You know, if you hear that music and you don't bow down like a machine, then what will happen is you'll be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Then who can deliver you? Then who is the God that can deliver you from my wrath? You see, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's a God. He's becoming like the idol. But because he is not the true God, he is one who lives for approval. You see, false gods, false religions live for the approval and blessing of others. They have no independent worth. And so the big problem here for Nebuchadnezzar is there's someone, anyone in the kingdom that doesn't like what he's done. And he can't have that. He can't possibly have that. How could you not like what I've done? How could you not think I'm the smartest king in the world? How could you not think this is the most beautiful statue? Who are you? And his reaction is one of anger, of fear, and of manipulation. This is something that is idolatry in our hearts that we need to guard against. How much approval do you need in your life? Kids? How much do you need to know that the other kids like the clothes you're wearing? Or they like the Christmas gifts you got? Or they like the way that you do things? What happens when you don't get that approval? Are you upset? Do you get angry? Do you perhaps maybe take it out on a sibling? Do you disobey mom and dad? What about teens? How much does approval mean to you? Have you ever thought about going to a college just because you think other people will like that? It's not really what you've thought about, but just because you know it would be popular. You'd be in with the in crowd. Have you ever worn clothes that didn't fit right or weren't comfortable or were expensive just because you know other people will approve of it? But you see, it's not just children. Moms. How much have you done in your household simply because you think it's the way things ought to be done? Because your neighbors will come over and appreciate what you've done. 
What happens when your neighbor comes over and doesn't notice the way you've redone the dining room? Do you get upset? Do you get angry? Does it strain your relationship? How about you, dads? How much approval are you seeking at work or at home? If not everyone toes the line exactly how you want it to, do you burst out in rage? Do you ignore your family? You see, this is idolatry of the heart. It's harder to spot than a 90-foot golden stick. But it's more powerful in our hearts. And we need to destroy it just as much. You see, because the alternative to idolatry is living for the living God. Not living for what others will think about us. Not living for what others will say about us. But living for what God will say about us. That's freedom. We don't have to worry about what the Joneses are doing. We don't need to keep up with them. We live for the Lord. You see, the irony here is seen in what happens to Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They are bound hand and foot. And again, this repetition of the language strikes us. If you have time, look down and see how many times the burning, fiery furnace is mentioned. It's nine. Look and see at the way it is described how they are thrown into the burning, fiery furnace with their cloaks, their hats, their trousers. They're dressed up for a state dinner. And they are bound up in all of their finery. It's almost comical. And they are thrown into the fire. And who is killed? It's not the ones who have said, take my life and let it be, O Lord. It's those who seek to save their life by obeying the king. You see, from death comes life. And from an attempt to keep one's life comes death. This is an application of what our Lord said in Luke 17, where He said, He who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who gives up his life for my sake will find it. It's an Old Testament proof text for that. It may even be one of the examples that our Lord used in His teaching. You see, because what was important to these three youths was not prosperity. It was not safety. It was principle. It was God. Would that the American church would put that first. Would that we would think less about our comfort, our safety, and our money, and more about the Scriptures. If it were, denominations would not be losing members by the tens of thousands. You see, God wants faithful servants. He doesn't care if you've got a great suit or a burlap jacket. He wants Christians to stand on principle. And that principle is what we saw this morning earlier when we read the Ten Commandments. You see, the three youths said, we will not disobey the direct command of God. We will not worship another God. We will not set up a golden image. God is more important than our safety. So what happens here? Well, you know the story. They're thrown into the fire And they are miraculously saved. And this is a story that we use to buoy up our spirits when we go through difficult times. 
When we're at the hospital and we say, well, you know, the Lord delivered Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. This isn't fire, but it's close. It's when the fire of conflict comes into our homes and we say, you know, the Lord delivered Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. He'll protect me from this. What I want you to see, though, is that that's not the primary meaning of this text. The primary meaning of this text is that the challenge is met and that God is the victor. You see, the challenge is met first by deliverance. God does deliver Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And he delivers them from this furnace. And this furnace is a furnace of affliction. It is not only an immediate danger to them, it is also drawing upon the biblical imagery of fire and a furnace. We might even say it's a metaphor because in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Israel's captivity in Egypt is described as being in a fiery furnace. It's exile in a land that is hostile. God delivers them not from the fire, but in the fire. Prepositions make a big difference, don't they? God has not promised to deliver you from sickness. Anyone who preaches that is a liar. He promises to deliver you in sickness. He does not promise to deliver you from poverty, as some falsely preach. He promises to deliver you in poverty and want. You see... This incident, this wonderful Sunday school lesson, this story that warms our hearts, is the visible fulfillment of a promise. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Isaiah, who lived several hundred years before Daniel, but who spoke of the day of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. In Isaiah chapter 43... And verse 2. This should be familiar to you. We have a song in our songbook about it. But thus now, says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Not if. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You see, this is just as true today as it was when Isaiah spoke it. As it was when the three Hebrew youths said, if God desires to deliver us, He can deliver us. And it's just as true today for the church. And you see, this text calls upon you to say with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in verse 17, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Verse 18. But if not, be it known to you that we will not worship. Is your God that big that you say God is able to get us through this month and pay the mortgage? But if not... But if in his good wisdom he chooses not to, I will worship him. God is able to answer my prayers and give me a child. 
But if he doesn't, I will worship him. That is the God of the Bible. The God who is free. The God who is sovereign. The God whose empire is above all. You see, just as the world is persistent in its attacks, God is persistent with his people. This chapter shows us the third promotion that Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego will get. Three troublesome times, three promotions. You see, God knows these attacks will come. Nebuchadnezzar actually asked the Hebrew youths to do exactly what Satan asked our Lord. Do you remember what he said in the temptation of Matthew 4 and verse 9? He said, if you will fall down and worship me, I will bless you. Now, Daniel is written in Aramaic. I've made that point before. Matthew is written in Greek. But there's a Greek translation of Daniel. And it shouldn't shock you to know that those are the two exact same words. It's the same call. It's always the call of the world. Bow down and worship the kingdom. Bow down. Give up God. And you'll get protection. Popularity. Wealth. All you have to do is bow down to the skinny golden stick. See, as soon as I say that, it sounds so foolish, doesn't it? That's what you need to hear when someone says to you, you know, if you just fudge these numbers, I'll give you a big promotion. Don't hear accounting terms. Hear skinny golden stick and refuse to bow down. Because that is always the call of the enemy. You see, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4 that we should not be surprised when a fiery trial comes. It's the way of the world. We need to be prepared and ready to stand upon the word of God. Because you see, it's all in the reaction to the challenge. Nebuchadnezzar faced this challenge. He saw the the deliverance of God and he reacts in a typical way for Nebuchadnezzar. He says, okay, now if anybody says anything bad about their God, then what could we do? Hmm, since now I'm so spiritual, tear them limb from limb, just like I said last chapter. You see, he hasn't changed a whit. What he has done is seen the power of God and he respects the power of God. But he's under conviction without conversion. Have you had that feeling? Where you know you're doing something that's wrong. But as soon as the twist in the gut goes away, you go right back to it. You see, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you must give him your whole life. You must be changed. Nebuchadnezzar is not someone who is on a different journey. He's like someone who is going to the gates of hell and it started raining and he found a covering and he stopped there for a while. That's all. As soon as it stops raining, he's going to pick up his merry way. This is what it means to serve the kingdom of man. And you see, his reaction is not unlike perhaps what you have experienced. Perhaps you've spoken to a co-worker or a friend and described to them how you have been blessed by the Lord through a trial. And they've said to you in what they hoped was not a condescending voice, Oh, that's so nice. 
I'm so glad for you to have that faith for you. Your faith must be a good help to you. As if it was something, well, that works for you like a crutch. But, you know, for us intelligent people who, music, bow. For us people who really ring the bell, salivate. This faith won't do. We're too busy. We've got to oil our robot joints. You see, this is what the world has. This is the reaction of Nebuchadnezzar. But the reaction of God's people is to wait upon God. And do you notice what happens here to Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego? Death has no sting for them, does it? Their clothes don't even smell of fire. Have you ever spent five minutes in a car with a smoker? And then at the end of the day, you go home and your wife says to you, or your husband says to you, what were you doing? So, I just drove to a meeting with Joe. Well, what'd you do? Smoke a 12-pack? What's going on here? You see, no smell, no taste, no felt piece of death comes upon those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Death has no sting for them. Because they waited upon the fourth one in the furnace. The one who was like a son of the gods. The challenge for Daniel 3 to you is, do you have the faith in your God and Savior to wait in the furnace? That's the challenge. 